Welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh, heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. Greetings, Angie. Greetings, greetings. How's it going? It's going well. Yep. Beautiful, beautiful fall day. It's it's nice. It's nice out there. Um, I'm doing pretty good myself. Pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. So, you know, I, I've been thinking about the way that we introduce heterodox Americana. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it feels a little, like, just too lofty to me. You know, like, thinking outside the box, whatever. Um, I, I'm really interested in these ideas that uh, sometimes people are holding. And they, you know, people get crushed by their own ideas sometimes. And I think without necessarily recognizing it, without realizing it, they get crushed by these ideas. And it just doesn't have to be, like, you don't have to suffer from your own thinking and like i don't know like it feels to me like seven times out of ten people end up suffering not because the world is a particular kind of way but you have an idea about it and it doesn't match your reality and then that it's that that mm. that, that conflict between the, the two models that people are like oh my life is so hard you know i'm not teasing them or anything like that i'm just saying that you can change your thinking to such a way that you you know what i mean like the world is it's not nearly as bad as you think it is. Mm. And just we can shift some ideas around and your life gets better. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think ideas, that's true. Like when you were t- saying that, and we actually did a show on this, something like when your reality doesn't match a blueprint or something like that um, and how how to work with that. But there, I think ideas are one thing, but I also think um, what's really important in our happiness is our narrative. Some would you know, call it a narrative or the story that we are telling ourselves. Um, And I think a lot of times we don't even know that we have this story. We've also talked about this on past podcasts. But um, the way that you um, could consider this is to often throughout your storytelling through the days and weeks and months is to ask yourself, um, you know, questions like, is that true? Right. Is that true? Um, you know, bad things always happen to me. Is that true? Um, I will always be in the same position without any movement. Is that true? Um, if you want to say yes, well, then you have now nailed down your story. If you want to say, well, I don't know. Let me see. Maybe I could try something else. Then you're starting to write a new story. But it's hard to to consider this unless you're really thinking about your own story instead of the story that, that you've built that's been constructed around the standard of what the world tells you, of what society tells you. And you have to really think about this on a very personal level. Yeah, so I agree with you. I think, you know, examining your narrative, that the story that you tell yourself is really important. And even as you interrogate it, asking yourself, you know, is this part of the story true? What are the facts that you muster to support whatever conclusion that you've come to? Are there facts to support it or do you just assume? Uh, we can also do the opposite. You know, we can ask, you know, what, what do the facts support? 
Um, and, and, you know, that might be a little bit, um, you know, long. Uh, it might be a little bit annoying to, to try to tease out, you know, the facts that support your narrative. But what if your entire life got better because of it? Right. Like, you know, it might be worth it. Yeah, be way worth it. Um, yeah, what, what's, what is bringing up this today? What are you, what are you thinking about? So you know that I'm given to polemics and I normally hold back. I think I won't because I'm tired of, why, why do I need to hold back? One, we're in a pandemic. Who holds back? Um, is that true? Yes. I'm not going to look at the facts of that. Uh, no, one of, so one of the, the, you know, if we're examining these ideas that are really, um, that kind of hold people back or hold people in place or diminish the quality of their lives. One of the ones that I see out there in the world is people's relationship to their children and um, and child rearing and the entire process of being a parent, which can be difficult for sure. But so often what I'm hearing is like, it doesn't need to be nearly as hard as, as it is for some people. And they could probably tweak it and just have like a much better time being a parent being in fewer fights, like it not being like pulling teeth, and that's that's what I want to suggest. Wow, just a little tweak, huh? Just a if you tweak. if you've got some, uh, yeah, if you've got some magic in the tweaks, I think you know you might as well just retire now because you're going to be a billionaire. <laughs> All you, if you're going to give somebody that information of the tweak of the parent, and things will improve a hundred percent. Let's go. Well, I'm going to give all of this magic away for free. Oh, free. Um. So, you know, I, I, I think obviously there's so much to cover in child psychology and obviously that's your wheelhouse. Um, but I think the way I think the way to proceed is to start with the end in mind, uh, that that place that is really approachable for parents now in terms of what they know. And then maybe throughout the show, we can sort of build into an area um, that is less familiar with them around child development. So I'd like to start with that part that we already know. So I'm assuming that you have kids that are not two. If you have kids that are two, then uh, this is not the show for you. Uh, But if, uh, or, you know, maybe it is, check check it out, right? Like in in a few years. Um, But if you've already dealt with uh, your will versus the child's will, and you're thinking about discipline and you know, what do I do now? If you're at your wit's end, basically, if you're like one of these parents, like, oh, I don't know what to do, um, then there's mm-hmm. a way to think about this. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what, do you, what are your suggestions? So I think you can use game theory and, let's say, political, like, the behavior of political entities to understand uh, child behavior. Well, what if you are not, you know, a poli- what if you don't have a degree in politics? What are we going to do? Right, so... Here, here, here. Are the basic here's the basic thing that I, I, I want people to understand. Uh, there are these one. Your child is not irrational, right? People in general are not irrational. People are not nearly as irrational as, and they're not as crazy, and they don't do things uh, outside of their interests the way we make it out to be. So sometimes you'll hear something like, um, sometimes you hear people say like. You know, so many of these Trump voters are voting against their own interests. But what you're doing in that moment is you think that you know their interests better than than they do. Mm -hmm. And not all interests boil down to economic interests. People have other interests, right? 
um, the interest for law and order might be more strong for them than it is for you, and they might be voting along that line. Right. So I think we can think of kids in the same way. Uh, we can think of states this way, but we can think of kids as kids have a set of interests. They're interested in a few things. Uh, I think I'm getting what you're saying. Right. And to the, right. And so to the degree that you can understand what your child actually wants. I see. You can engage with their interests in a way that allow you to see into their world. So I think it's important to see into their world, not just dictate their world. I'm the parent. You have to do this. That's all well and good. Uh, I don't necessarily think that that's all well and good, um, but that works in some places. But if you can really understand the internal world, the map of the world that your child has and understand their interests, then you have a much better way of uh, getting them to do what's best for them and best for the family. And, you know, the thing that is good for their long term interests, as well as maybe their medium term interests. So when you're saying, because you, you lost me for a second when you were saying that kids are not irrational, and in my head I'm like, yes, they are so irrational, you know, like, I, um, you know, as a mother of, of three and two that are past 21, I mean, you know, the, the irrationality of at one point, you know, ending up at the hospital because one of them had ingested enough vodka, <laughs> <laughs> to put her in there I laugh because it's all fine and she's she's fine that was irrational so but I, I I think what I'm hearing is it's not that they're not going to have irrational behavior the rationale the the when you're saying that kids aren't irrational they have a rationale that they're working out of they have ideas and rational thoughts around what the next move is so it's figuring out what their rational brain whatever they're thinking is rational and it's seeing their uh, the world from their eyes that's exactly right so that that's how we have to understand rational we have to understand rational as always being connected to an outcome expected to here's the thing that i want now say for example if you really want to play with a dog and um, you're not a, like a sociopath kid if you want to play with a dog and then you throw the dog down the stairs and then the dog doesn't want to play with you anymore and you know you just like whoa i thought it would work like that it sounds might... like a sociopath kid but... right i'm sorry like that would be irrational <laughs> right but that's not what people that's like right. no one does that except the sociopath right right, right. Uh, so mostly people are rational that's right. that's uh until right. so we understand their interests uh, and kids have interests that are not i mean thank goodness that kids have interests that are not that complex not like adults like like there are adults that want to be choked sometimes like all types of just people want all types of things um <laughs> like kids are not that complicated you okay. know what i mean yes um here's one of the things that is completely i think uh, you know we can take from the world of politics and use in the world of child understanding okay uh, I just I just coined that term child understanding. Um, coined child understanding. The world of child understanding. Okay. Uh, one this so there's this idea of prestige, right? And so to be careful, I, I need to separate this word prestige from the way that we use it most of the time. Uh, most of the time, people think prestige. They think Mercedes Benz or whatever, right? Luxury, and that's not what I mean. Uh, prestige in the political sense is the respect of your peers, uh, and, and it's not just about redefining how prestige works. It's understanding that prestige is really important in terms of how kids navigate status, in terms of how they see themselves. It's true for adults as well. I don't want to separate this from adults. Uh, 
But often adults have so much going on in their lives that they they are able to put prestige to the side. Um, I mean, they're able to navigate in ways that kids can't necessarily navigate it. Well, there's a term for this in psychology, and it's, it is between the ages, I believe, of 13 and 19, and it's called the imaginary audience. So it's, it's a well-known term. It's studied, you know, kids believe their, their, their brains are saying that the world is pretending or the world is completely attending and paying attention to me. Right. So they think that everyone is always watching and um, kind of observing them under a microscope. Um, that's why the kid with the pimple won't go outside because they're terrified that everyone sees it as a boulder in the middle of their forehead, which right. isn't true. Um, so, yeah, I think adults certainly contend with this, but this is really heightened developmentally in the brain in, you know, in teenagers, this imaginary audience. Right. So if you take this idea of, of an imaginary audience and then, you know, sort of extrapolate what is what is this teen trying to do to gain the most prestige in front of this audience, then you can start to see a set of behaviors that tend to pop up a whole lot, um, especially if they don't have like a secondary outlet like I do gymnastics or I do, you know, I play the violin in the basement by myself when no one's around. Like if they don't have one of these mm-hmm. secondary outlets, if their primary way of relating to their identity is just through the social world, um, then what they do to gain prestige, the, the way that they, they interact with that in that their own little social world or in front of this imaginary audience, it's important to understand that this is a key driver for, for so many kids. Mm-hmm. So how do you get around this? Uh, you don't. Yeah. You, you, you understand. So it, it allows you to better predict I see what you're saying. So this is why you're introducing it, is to note that this is what's going on. And so this gives you kind of a map to follow in terms of prediction of their behavior. Right. So if if you're thinking, so you might be a parent and you might say, you know, because I, you know, I started off talking about understand their interests, understand their desires, right? Um, what if you don't know their interests? Well, just know that for a set of kids, prestige is going to be really high. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, especially if they're not involved in some secondary thing, soccer or whatever. Um, but prestige is going to, to, to play very high end. And you can use that as a lens to say, oh, is my kid prestige seeking at this moment? Or my kid is feeling really down. Maybe it's because of... And then, you know, they tell you some story like, well, this person didn't call me back, whatever. It's like, oh, right. There's a knock to their prestige right there. Mm-hmm. And to the way that they see themselves in a status hierarchy... And then you can sort of have a better window into, you know, what's happening for them and, and why it feels so so tragic, even if it, like, you're like, whatever. Mm-hmm. So now that we have this understanding that, you know, we talked about this imaginary audience and that there's prestige seeking, you know, that becomes a thing for kids. Understanding this or understanding that this is what's going on for them, like if they, you know, want the sneakers or they didn't get the call back, just because you understand what's happening, how does this make you a better parent? Like, how does this work? So, I mean, it it allows you to understand the internal world of your child. And I think that in and of itself is important. Uh, It's it's important for this reason. Uh, understanding your, your child's internal world allows you to normalize uh, or to understand what normal behavior is. 
So, so much of what we do as parents and our anxiety is, you know, making sure our, our kids have, like making sure they're okay. Is this okay? Is this, is this okay? And if we don't have a way to evaluate what's okay in terms of their internal experiences, like for example, if, no, let, let me just keep going. Uh, if you have a sense of what is normal for the internal experiences of a child, uh, then you don't have to panic, you don't have to be upset, and you don't have to fix everything. So some of these experiences are, are, are saying that you don't have to fix it, you don't have to make them okay. If they've built enough resilience, and maybe we can talk about resilience, uh, that they're going to recover, that this is normal behavior for them, and uh, it's fine. They're just like every other kid. So this, if I'm hearing you, it's developmentally expected. It's, it's going to show up um, in these, like, you know, adolescent years um you will see it in forms of you know where they get hit in terms of their ego um i didn't get the thing i wanted i didn't have the brand new iphone i didn't get the sneakers i didn't get the call from the popular kid um and it's not about then at that point scurrying around and saying how do we fix this well let's get you the sneakers well let's get you the phone it's understanding that this is going to happen and this is what they have to work through right. and maybe sometimes they will get the sneakers that's right but sometimes they won't, but you can see it as this is the form of development rather than these are personal problems with their family, that they don't have everything they want or that, that she or he is sad because they're not with the popular kids. This is like de- appropriate developmental behavior. Expect it and note that it is going to, it's part of, it's part of them working through life. They're going to grow. Yeah, I think understanding that that is, yeah, I mean, you said it perfectly. Uh, there, there's another interesting aspect to prestige too, but you because you, you were saying sometimes they get the phone, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they get the sneakers, sometimes they don't. Um, you know, if you have the means, it's helpful. And if you understand how prestige works, maybe this is the reason I'm entering it in. Is like sometimes it's it's not just okay. Like sometimes it's valuable. I don't know if it's it's going to be valuable to give them the prestige thing that they want every single time. Uh, because it's possible to become prestige seeking, like mm-hmm. seeking prestige for its own sake. Uh, and there's enough data out there. Tim Kassler has a book uh, that talks about this. It's called The High Price of Materialism. Uh, but prestige seeking for its own sake is like the fast train to unhappiness, mm-hmm. to lifelong unhappiness. It's like I, the or Anthony Bourdain's of the world, right? Yeah. I, I think you really end up in a tra- Well, the data says that you're, you really end up in a trap if and Daniel Kahneman too, he 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 did a paper. Um, uh, he did a couple papers uh, that build off the high price of materialism. Uh, so it's well documented by behavioral uh, psychologists and behavioral uh, economists that that say, oh, prestige seeking for its own sake is it, it's the fast track to unhappiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can play with it. You can give in to the prestige sometimes. You know, you can get them the prestigious thing that they want sometimes. And sometimes when you understand that what they want is not about the object itself, it's about the prestige that they would like to, you know, sort of direct to their own Mm self-esteem, that they're trying to infer self-esteem from the object. It's in those moments that as a parent, you was like, oh, this is purely prestige-seeking behavior, and maybe we, we don't need to say yes to this. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important step. I think that's important, too. I think it's worth mentioning, just in what I've noted, um, particularly listening to people's stories from childhood on, 
there are those moments where you, as a parent, and, and, and this is, it's a tricky, maybe it's not a tricky line, but to consider what kind of values you're pushing on your child that don't necessarily need to be pushed in a way that makes them stand out. Um, it's important you know, tribally to be able to feel like you belong to the community. So if you're noting, you know, that thing that you're just not willing to forego because somehow it's very connected to your own personal value and you're pushing this on their kid and it makes them have to adopt or adapt to something that they it's not necessary and it makes them feel outside of the group that gets tricky and i don't think that's really healthy for the kid yeah you're right so this is imminently tricky right um this is probably the the, the trickiest thing of all especially if you live in cities right so i i would argue that morality is much harder to uh, if we understand morality as as or values the way you're talking about uh, but if we understand that as emerging from a tapestry of ways that people do things together, mm-hmm. part of the problem that happens in cities is that there are no common ways that people do things together. Hmm. Um, parents are pursuing vastly different strategies, vastly different things. You know, you can think about religious parents who live in cities who are Christian, religious parents who live in, in cities who are, are Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist atheist parents, uh, parents who are vegan, you know, there's right. so many right. different strategies that people in cities are pursuing that it, it's hard to think of a tapestry that gives rise to a common morality, right? And so there is a problem in that. What do you do if your value is completely at odds with, say you're a vegan, you know, a vegan Buddhist who, you know, you you and your husband, you meditate six times a day or whatever it is. And you want your kid to start off meditating three times a day. Uh, which means that she might not be able to go to the sleepover. Mm-hmm. Now what? Right. Right. Or like you can go to the sleepover, but just make sure you meditate while you're there. Like, that would be completely like, what are you doing? Right. But, but, how do you, but if that's a value for you, how, how do you navigate that? Mm-hmm. In this particular case, I think it's absolutely necessary to understand that in a city the thing that i already said in a city you are navigating lots of values Mm -hmm. all the time and there isn't right it's you against the world if you happen to be a vegan buddhist who you know you meditate six times a day like it's you against the world Mm -hmm. there is also this realization that no matter how you how hard you try ask you know any kid of immigrant parents who the parents tried so hard to get them to speak that language and now they barely do no matter how hard you try you are i mean you're moving against forces in cities that like they, they just they're not in your favor mm-hmm. right prestige is working against you mm-hmm. um so what do you do i think you have two choices you can either go to a place where your values are completely upheld right find a community where your values are completely upheld move to an area that is not a city where your values are completely upheld or ask your kid like you know ask yourself what's more important in this moment the developmental health of your child or them sticking to you know whatever it is like it like let's say there's a trade-off if your kid ends up depressed and has um you know a long time unhealthy relationship with depression but they still meditate six times a day and then they hate you when you're when they're in their 20s and maybe you know depressive into their 40s like would it have been worth it 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are great questions. I mean, I, I know of a friend who, um, she had a unibrow before it was cool with Frida Kahlo. Right. I mean, Frida Kahlo existed, but nobody knew her yet. <laughs> and she really, this may sound like an, a funny example, but it's true. Like, she really wanted it to be gone. She got teased, and her mother was dead set against any kind of, like, plucking. So even now, as an adult, this is the story of her childhood of how um, badly she felt being pushed out all the time because of this and had her mother just let her, you know, do something with the unibrow that she wouldn't have felt so ostracized. So even values like that, where I could see on, on the mother's, you know, from the mother's viewpoint, like, don't change your face, you're beautiful. I could hear all of it, you know, or... You know, don't alter this. This is the way it's supposed to be. But the kid feeling more and more outside of anything normal at school. And the mother, you know, the value that she's trying to instill is working against her. Well, that's a that's a great example. Right. Love yourself the way that you are. That's the mom's value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did they live in a city? Yes. Don't go changing. Um, so the, the problem is this in so a city, right? Right. <laughs> the problem is this, if, especially if you live in a city, um, or if you live in a community that's not a unibrow community, right? Cause if you live in a community where unibrows are ubiquitous, yeah, if you live in a unibrow cult, right, yeah. then it's, it's not a, it's not a problem. Um, <laughs> <The> unibrow ranch. <laughs> right. I mean, there, there, there are some groups of people that I know who are unibrow heavy. Yeah, I don't want to name anybody on the air, but there's some groups should. of people. They're like, there are a lot of unibrows. Yeah, some people um, rock it. I mean, Frida, look at her. Her portraits there, everywhere. Th- there you go. Okay. Um, she was also like an amazing artist. Who? Yeah. Like part of Our that buddies, is right, yeah, yeah was there's, outside the box. There's God. that. <laughs> um, but so if you're in a city, uh, part of the problem, like you might want. Right. You might want people to judge you on the inside. Right. And not on the outside. Right. Uh, As much as we want it, everything in our society is proof positive that that's just not true. Lipstick says that's not true. $400 jeans says that's not true. Really, $70,000 in haircut says that that's not true. Mm -hmm. Like what you look like on the outside matters to society. And to the degree that you stick out. It's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Um, People have... Yeah, so it's a problem. If you're exercising control over your child's body in this way that is not to... um, You know, it's not to prevent them from doing harm to themselves. Mm -hmm. So say there's like, there's no physical harm. They just want to do this completely aesthetic... Like, it's that's a low-risk thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um... Them, what what's the harm? Mm-hmm. Is it against your values? Yeah, I get it, right? Um, I don't want my daughter wearing lipstick or any kind of makeup, but you know how many times I've brought it up to her? Zero times. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's not... I, I know that I can't control the outside society. We could move to a place where that is de-emphasized as a value, right? If you care about it that much. Um, but I think trying to exercise control over your child's body 
in a way that like there's no harm being done there's no real harm being done mm-hmm. whatever moral thing that you think you are defending against mm-hmm. the city is going to get them anyway mm-hmm. the city is going to get them anyway so let her pluck her eyebrows yeah i agree um and i think that's where the parent you know you have to consider what's going on it could you know work in in the same way it's different it's not the ostracization but it's the value kind of what we were talking about before of if the parent is prestige seeking and if you're actually you know kind of pushing that on the kid wow well if the parent is prestige seeking what to do then I think you, yeah, I mean, you would have to, the parent would have to reevaluate. Right, yeah, I think you just start over, right? (laughs) Yeah. The parent is prestige seeking primarily, then, I mean, there's a couple things we already know. One, that person's not happy. Two, you can't, I mean, you literally can't raise kids in, in the formula for happiness if you are stuck on the path of materialism. Mm -hmm. Again, I, I would recommend Tim Cash's book. It's a little, you know, it's a little, I don't know. I mean, they're like numbers and charts and graphs and all that kind of stuff. You know, it, it's not light reading per se. Um, but you, 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 I, I don't know if it's possible. Mm-hmm. If, there, if there's a parent who has a set of values that tethers them to materialism, mm-hmm. I don't know if they can, I, I, I don't even know what that would look like. I, I don't think it's possible. Well, and it's interesting because I think maybe even people hearing this, this could sound like um, a morality policing and you know being tethered to prestige seeking um i don't think well neither one of us are talking about this in a in a moralistic way like you know that you shouldn't seek after these things that um you know cost a lot because a b and c it's a it's a moral issue that's not what you're saying right. and that's not what i'm saying it's this research that is um based on if you are tethering yourself as you said to um, the prestige, it is a dead end. You will not ever find peace or true happiness because of the kind of the circuitous, the the hamster wheel right. you get on, that it will never be enough. And then you're teaching your kid, it'll never be enough. Right. It's a hole that you can't fill. That's right. So I, I, I appreciate that you brought that up. Um, he, here's the way that I look at it. So I, I like really, you know, I love to drive. I love I love driving. Um, I you know one of my biggest fears is that I'm going to die in a car accident. Um, That's the, one of my biggest fears when I get into the car with you. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> that I'm going to die right. in a car accident. It's one of my one of my biggest fears. <laughs> I, I, have, I have another fear um, that is not you know I have another fear that I'll just crash a really expensive car because um, I was driving. You know, like an asshole, right? Yeah, like zero that's, to seventy in about three seconds. Right. Got it. Um, so that's I love it, right? I love the roar of, you know, like a well-tuned Subaru or a Ferrari or a Porsche, and it's not that much in between for me. There are a couple BMWs that I really like. I like fast cars. I like to drive them fast in cities, right, on city streets. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I remember we, we took a trip to. Uh, this was in undergrad. Uh, a few friends, uh, we, we were doing a business together. We took a trip to Columbus, Ohio. Hmm. And, uh, and I remember we were downtown Ohio. <laughs> so there are two of these stories. Salute. Uh, there, there, one was, you know, I drive fast anyway. And uh, we hit West Virginia. 
we're driving through Pennsylvania, and you hit it because you're driving fast. No, yeah, yeah. We I hit it because <laughs> we're driving fast. Uh, West Virginia dips down into Pennsylvania and some or dips. I don't know. It's like some, we had to drive through West Virginia to get to Ohio. It was like a weird like whatever. Um, but I remember so vividly looking at the speed limit in West Virginia, and it's at seventy five. Hmm. I'm used to sixty five. Mm-hmm. I said seventy five. I can. There's no limit. That means I can go eighty five. I, I can go. I was already doing eighty five, right? Uh, uh, seventy five. Hey, I can go as fast as I want. Um, so we're doing like one hundred and fifteen down uh, oh. down route, whatever it was that we we're doing. Uh, it's in this. It's in this relatively old uh, Honda Accord. Um, <laughs> just was not built. It wasn't the fast it, it car that you dream about. It was fast enough, but it wasn't built to handle and to maneuver. Oh, uh, right. on the high on a windy highway, yeah. and you feel the wind. Right, you feel the wind when you're doing 158. Um, it wasn't built to maneuver in those conditions. Right? And um, <laughs> you know, crossing, you know, switching lanes, switching lanes when you're doing 115 is like it's a sport, right? It's an art form. Mm. It's amazing. Mm. Uh, so at one point, um, at one point. There was uh, a, a car that was in front of me that was passing another car. So uh, the car that was passing the other car was on the left. And uh, I, of course, I'm doing 115. So I, I want to get past the car on the left. So I decided that I was going to kind of squeeze through that hole and get in the right lane. As I get in the right lane, uh, the car ha- that had done the passing also moves in to the right lane mm-hmm. because he or she had completed their passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, now this car is moving however slowly it was in front oh. of me. Oh, gosh. Uh, and then I have to maneuver back into the left lane. Right. So it was from the left lane to the right lane to the left lane, all in short succession. And what happened was the car uh, the, the car came up off of two wheels. Oh, gosh. And then we were on two wheels for about, I don't know, it seemed like an eternity. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone who was was one person who was asleep in the car, everyone who was awake had their lives uh, flash before their eyes. Yeah. Uh, We were on two wheels for probably three seconds tops, if even that. Mm -hmm. Again, it seemed like forever. Yeah. Uh, By the time the other two wheels sort of slammed down to the ground, uh, thankfully I didn't lose control, right? Nice Um, job. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Um, But... um, but my roommate starts, he starts screaming out of his mind. Of course. He's like, Ruff, Ruff, what are you doing, Ruff? And I just kind of give him a look like, calm down. As if, you know, because I got it. Oh. And you know what? I did have it. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Anyway, that's not the Columbus story. Same trip. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Same trip. Now we're in Columbus. Okay. Same Honda Accord. Yep. Uh... We're going through this very center of Columbus, Ohio, and, uh, you know, I hit like three green lights in a row. And I love that. Like something special happened to me today, right? I got green lights all the way. Um, So I get like three green lights in a row, and then I see that the the next one in front of me is probably going to be green too, but um, as I look up ahead, I see that like there's like a timing to them, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it seems like I might actually miss the, this one that, that is coming up. 
And so I, I just speed up so that I can catch the green light. Everyone mm-hmm. does that, right? You, no one wants to be at a yellow light. Mm-hmm. It's just rational behavior. Yeah, every, everyone does Everyone that. does this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in order to catch the green light, it turns out that you have to drive faster than the speed limit in the city. So I'm doing 60 in the mm. middle. Mm-hmm. I'm doing 60 in the middle of Columbus. I get like nine green lights in a row. I know there's a very high chance for me to be pulled over, but like you can't pass up on a. If they're going to time the lights like that, mm-hmm. what do you want me to do? Yeah, good question. This is a tangent. All I'm saying so is. So tangent. I love driving. <laughs> I love it, right? Yes. Uh, and so we were talking about this morality piece, like being connected to material right. things. Isn't and that... prestige, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to wind exactly yes. right, right to that. Yes, we're driving uh, back. Uh, you know, I, I drive manual. I, I love driving. Um, for me, if it's a Porsche or a Ferrari or, um, you know, certain BMWs that are manual, uh, you know, transmissions, then it's because of my appreciation of the thing that I'm interested in those things mm-hmm. and not for the prestige. Mm-hmm. So you, there can be a lot of prestige that is conferred by driving a Porsche, right? Mm-hmm. But if you look at my relationship to Porsche, it's not about the prestige. It's about my own intrinsic satisfaction with the thing. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I mention that is because if you're the person you just love beautiful clothes, you love the way they fit, you love the way they drape on you, you just love beautiful clothes, and it's not about you don't seek them primarily for prestige, then I, that's not prestige seeking. Mm-hmm. If you love something because you have an intrinsic appreciation for that thing, then that's not a problem. That's not a problem for anyone. Mm-hmm. It's when you you seek the thing for the prestige that you think it will confer upon you and not for its own sake, not for your own intrinsic appreciation of it, but when you buy because you think it will confer prestige upon you, then that is the prestige-seeking behavior and that is the, the part that, like, that sends you on the road to unhappiness. Right. Yeah, and I think in, you know, in psychology and therapy, we would call that, you know, identifying with the ego. It's a, it's about an ego boost. It's saying, you know, my value is attached to how people will see me as valuable by the car I drive, by the house I have, by the job I have. That's where my value comes from. Right. Um, and then you're, you're right. You're on a fast track to constantly be proving your value through what you think other people should see about you. Um, so all of that to say, you know, we're not, this is not about a morality piece for a kid in terms of their prestige seeking. And sometimes you may want to give in even to the, you know, to the process of what it's like for them to have a really nice pair of sneakers and what's that like and what's it doing for you? You know, it sounds a little, I don't know. I'm not, this isn't preachy. It's just like, really investigate, ask the kid, you know, does it feel better when you wear them? Like what's going on? And Probably if they're between the ages of, you know, 13 and 17 and they're a girl, they're probably not going to say anything. I don't know what a boy's going to do. But, um, you know, it is important to keep them engaged in the ways of which they're figuring out their identity. I, I, I love that. I love this idea of keeping them engaged with how they're figuring out their identity. Um, you know, so e- even even having awareness around this as a parent. I think mm-hmm. your awareness in and of itself. So one of the things you, you could do, uh, you know, the the, 11, the the iPhone 11 Pro Max or whatever it's called, it's like a $1,500 phone. Mm-hmm. Like there's no way I'm buying a $1,500 phone. But say that I did. 
Mm-hmm. One of the things that I want both adults and children to understand is that so there there's going to be some prestige conferred around it, right? That's that's already going to happen. It's a $1,500 phone. People are going to be like, oh, snap, you got the new iPhone? So that's going to happen, mm-hmm. which is fine, right? Um, have them be aware of their feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what does this feel like? But also be aware of the last iPhone that you got. Mm-hmm. And adults can do this too. You remember the last iPhone you got? Do you remember how great it felt? Do you remember how you feel about it now? Mm-hmm. Oh, right. It's changed, right? The, the phone is the same phone. Mm-hmm. You, the prestige wore off because... The thrill is gone. Right. You know what I mean? Like, we habituate to that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So just know that at some point, this phone is going to feel amazing, and then that will wane, and then it won't feel amazing. And if you understand that that's true about every single thing that you buy, that that feeling will always wear off, then you can have a different like it, there are people who don't understand that because you can hop from purchase to purchase to purchase and purchase and keep buying new feelings and never have it dawn on you that this feeling always goes away and then you got to go buy it you know like they're yeah um so if you're at least aware you know ahead of time that okay we'll do this we'll get this prestige seeking item right you'll enjoy it You'll enjoy it probably for this long, and then it's going to wane, right? That feeling is going to dissipate. I just want you to know that when it dissipates, that's part of the process. Mm-hmm. And it's not because this thing is inherently valued. It's just that you like the prestige of it. Right. And even raising awareness around that, I think, is sufficient to, to have adult or child think about the item differently. And I think it's important to note here um, the experience with children or teenagers this is not a pie in the sky um, mentality. Um, having, you know, the experience with kids, it's not as if you're going to get a ton of feedback. This isn't us like mm. saying, you know, talk to the kid, you know, have them investigate it, note what they, you know, what their feelings are. What probably is going to happen, <laughs> unless it doesn't, and you have this other type of kid, which is great, is you're going to be saying this, you're going to get a thousand eye rolls. You're probably going to maybe get um, nothing in return. You may get, you don't get it. Um, you sound, that could, that sounds like anything, which is the term that I get often. I mean, that sounds like anything. So you're going to get a lot of this probably not so great feedback. That's okay. Um, I, we talked about this on another show at one point, is this rehearsing over and over and over again, even um, in spite of, even with the eye rolls and the negativity you get, so important. Just keep going. Keep going. Don't attach to the outcome necessarily of all the warm feelings you think you might get by having this great conversation with this kid. It's probably not going to happen, but they need to just keep hearing this. And at some point in their life, maybe when their prefrontal cortex is a little bit more developed, this will mean something to Mm. them. So it's the teaching that's important, not necessarily the response. The kid is probably still going to want the iPhone X or the sneakers or whatever. They're still going to want it. Um, and you're going to have to make the decision case by case what you're going to do. But just keep that dialogue or probably in this case, it'll be a monologue that you will be saying with this kid over and over and over again. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, all of us have this experience of, of something deeply internal that our parents have said to us and we reflect back and you say, oh, you know, my mom was right. My dad was right. right. Um, or, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, God, 
my mom was completely off there. Mm-hmm. My dad had no idea what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. But either way, that that frame of reference is this internal story that you had right. been getting from your parents when you were young, right. and it made an impression. So I, you know, I, I think what you what you're saying is I agree. It's it's our job to help inform. Uh, that internal dialogue right. uh, for the kids until they get to a point where they can start to question and interrogate their own ideas. That's right. On. And, you know, I think early enough, they are adopting the values of the parent. You're really instilling in them the values. And eventually you're right that they'll kind of, you know, start to move away and then start to understand whether or not they want to keep the values or not. And that's a decision we all make at some point. But it's really, you're, you're the major influence, even if it feels like you're not. Right. So, you know, I really didn't think that this was going to be a show about prestige, but that, that's sort of what it turned into, uh, which is totally fine. And even, even you know, what we talked about in terms of uh, a very, you know, careful approach to prestige seeking is still okay, right? It's fine to have nice things. That's not what I'm, uh, I'm saying, but... If anything, then maybe we've helped put the idea of prestige on people's radar Mm -hmm. and they can engage with it uh, in a different way and use it as a lens to see into the internal lives of of their their children. Mm -hmm. And themselves. Yeah, I think it's it's important. And again, in terms of research, you know, where real happiness comes from, um, which is what we like to talk a lot about on this show. Right. So maybe we can, you know, in another show, we can revisit this idea of mirroring and mm. and uh, exploration and all the things that happen in early childhood development and just kind of continue this idea of how to do the best for a child. I would love that. I would love that. Right. For now, I'm Raphael. This is Heterodox Americana. And I'm Angie. And we'll see you in about a week. See ya.